And please turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 3. As we've worked our way into this third and final chapter of Nahum. There's a list that comes out uh, every year, uh, every couple of years, depending on uh, the website you look at, Uh, but a list of top 10 cities to live in uh, each year, whether in the U.S. or in Canada or even the world. Now, there's one city that never gets listed uh, in uh, these lists, and it's the city mentioned there in the front of your bulletins at the bottom there in Psalm 87.3. Uh, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Uh, not a city you typically find on uh, the best cities to live in uh, across the world. Well, it's never listed, but it is the best city, as we're going to consider tonight, uh, uh, somewhat indirectly, uh, mostly by way of contrast. Uh, the city of God. Uh, isn't mentioned specifically uh, in our text, as we're going to read it here in just a moment. Uh, But we have a great and stark contrast to the city of God. In fact, we've already mentioned it uh, earlier in the service. It is the bloody city, or the city of blood, uh, that we'll be focusing on tonight in Nahum chapter 3. And so, there are other lists that come out uh, from time to time on the internet. Things like the most violent cities, or the most unsafe cities to live in in the world. Uh, Recently, uh, Tijuana, Mexico has been listed as uh, the most violent city to live in, as their murder rate uh, is the highest, uh, just beating out Caracas, Venezuela. And I'm sure if a census like this was taken back in the 7th century, uh, we would find uh, Nineveh as that city Uh, in the number one spot on the most violent or most unsafe cities uh, to live in. Not because it would have been unsafe to live inside the city walls of Nineveh, uh, but it would have certainly been unsafe to live in the vicinity of Nineveh or in the vicinity of the nation that she represented as its capital, uh, the nation of Assyria. Well, let's see uh, why then Assyria was such a wicked nation And its capital then uh, is called the bloody city. As we read Nahum chapter 3 verses 1 through 19. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. 
All who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences. In a day of cold, when the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains, with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Well, we see once again the evil of Nineveh. Uh, recorded for us, and therefore the just retribution, or the just judgment that is coming upon her uh, from the Lord through his prophet Nahum, as he uh, depicts for us this coming day of trouble and this coming judgment. Well, let's take this chapter uh, chunk by chunk and walk through it uh, together as we continue to explore these themes and bring them Uh, to something of a close this evening as we will, uh, Lord willing, finish uh, the book of Nahum tonight. What I want to point your attention to first, then, is this first chunk of verses 1 through 4. We have the woe and the weapons. Uh, The woe to the bloody city of Nineveh. And then we have the weapons that will come against this bloody city there in verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, of course, reminding us uh, really what came in chapter 2. Uh, the same kinds of weapons uh, being talked about there. And so I won't uh, go back and rehash that. But once again, Nahum is reminding Nineveh of the ferocity that is about to come against her by these armies. But let's look at, uh, look at then verses 1 uh, through uh, 1 and 4 as the bookends of this chunk. We see that the woe comes to this bloody city of Nineveh uh, because she has grown rich 
off of murderous deception. She has grown rich off of murderous deception. Uh, we uh, can catch a glimpse of how this happened uh, as we look into the history records, and many historians have uh, unearthed for us uh, some of the writings of the kings of Nineveh. And here's one in particular uh, uh, of one of the kings of Assyria named Asher Banipal. As he was writing about his campaign against Egypt, he said this, uh, The people who had revolted I captured, great and small. I cut down with the sword. Their corpses I hung on stakes. I tore off their skins and covered the wall of the city with them. And so we see then that uh, Nahum, uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord, calling Nineveh a bloody city, uh, was certainly accurate, as the kings of Nineveh even boasted in their bloody campaigns. And in light of this last statement from Asher Bonerpal, uh, that king of Nineveh, uh, one thing he failed to mention, as he said that he tore off the skins of his victims and covered the walls of the city with them, is he failed to mention that he would typically do this while they were still alive. Uh, one author puts it this way, uh, he often flayed alive through a process in which their skin was gradually and completely removed. And I tell you this not to unsettle you or so you lose your appetite, but to understand uh, the nature of violence that we're talking about here when we're talking about Nineveh and this title of the bloody city. In fact, the Assyrians in general were famous for their torturing skills. Uh, they were utterly painful and bloody. And so this is the most appropriate woe, woe to the bloody city. But I said that this bloody city uh, is also one that is, uh, has gotten wealthy off of deception or murderous deception. And we see that kind of language here in verses 1 and 4. Uh, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And then all... Um, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, down in verse 4. Graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Uh, this verse is bringing to view the sorcery and uh, the spiritism uh, that uh, Assyria and Nineveh would have practiced. Uh, divinization um, to leverage it against uh, her enemies. Um, but also broken alliances. As we see here, uh, that Nineveh being spoken of as a full of lies and plunder. And then we see down there, who betrays nations with her whorings. Uh, bringing these two together and looking at some of the historical records of Nineveh, uh, Nineveh would have had many alliances with the nations around her. And uh, Nineveh would have broken their word in these alliances many times um, as something more lucrative came along. And so uh, Nineveh is being called to account uh, for the way in which she has dealt uh, with the nations around her, not only spilling their blood, uh, but also uh, divining against them and betraying them and breaking her word. And so in light of verse uh, 1 and verse 4 together, uh, we see that Nineveh is a bloody and a deceptive city. Or we could describe her this way. 
that Nineveh was a city full of murder and lies, or she was a murderer and a liar. And I say it that way because it's good to remember how Jesus described even the evil city of his day, that bloody city of Jerusalem, as we read about in Matthew chapter uh, 23. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, uh, verse 44. He said, you, speaking to the evil and unbelieving Jews of his day, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus tells us that the devil was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And so when we look at Nineveh, we see a once repentant city, repentant before the one true living God, as Jonah recorded for us, as we went through that book months ago. Uh, But now this city, once repentant, is bearing the attributes, not of the God that she once repented to, but she's bearing the attributes of Satan himself. We could say this, the capital city of Assyria had become a city of Satan, or an outpost of Satan. And as such, then, Nahum is reminding us, she will be crushed, just like the master that she resembles, by the Lord who always comes to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what we have then, beginning in verse 5 is we have, once again, the Lord's antagonism stated for us against this city. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Any outpost of Satan, any city of Satan, any resembler of Satan, uh, the Lord is against. And not only him, but also his hosts or his armies. But not only do we see here uh, the Lord's antagonism expressed once again, being against Nineveh, uh, we see here in this, these verses that follow, uh, verses 5 through 7, uh, the Lord adding insult to injury in his antagonism against them. Uh, he is heaping up these phrases uh, like nakedness or lifting your skirt over your face, uh, shame, Uh, Filth, contempt, spectacle. He will hold them up and make an example of them, insulting them uh, before the nations that surround them. Uh, None will come to their help. None will come to their comfort. None will come and sympathize for them, uh, but will be held up uh, to utter contempt and shame. Now, this isn't the Lord just uh, being... uh, Nasty, as some may read this text and some commentators seem to indicate. Um, what the Lord is doing, as he always does, is uh, he reminds us that he will not be mocked. Uh, he will uh, return uh, the treatment upon his enemies. Uh, he will treat them the same way that they have treated others. And so we need to ask the question, how did Nineveh treat God's image bearers? How did they treat the other nations? How did they treat, how did the Ninevite kings treat other kings in their midst? Well, here's one of the boasts of, uh, once again, King Ashurbanipal. 
And he boasts of his pity or he boasts of his compassion. Uh, Listen to what he says uh, from one of the historical records that we have. Uh, He speaks uh, about one of his captured enemies. I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel of the east gate of the wall of Nineveh which is named Entrance of the Thronging Nations. To the glory of Ashur, Ishtar, and the great gods, my lords, I took pity upon him and spared his life. So in this boast of one of the Ninevite kings, we see precisely how he would treat his captives. He would pierce them through to put a dog chain on them and then cage them or kennel them like dogs at the gate of entrance through which nations would come. And so the king would put on display kings that he had captured, and he would treat them like animals. He would hold them up to utter contempt and shame. They would have filth thrown at them as they sat chained like a dog in these kennels. And so the Lord's language here, Uh, would have been telling to the Ninevites that just as they have treated others, so too they will be treated. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Well, if that's what the pity or the compassion of Nineveh uh, looked like uh, through that king's own account, you can only imagine their ruthlessness. To say they had it coming would be an understatement. Then we move into verses 8 through 10, another chunk of chapter 3 here. And we see here, really, the foolishness of rebellion. Uh, The very question that this section begins with, are you better than Thebes? In other words, are you better than another city that has succumbed to judgment? Are you better than another city uh, that has been utterly destroyed? Uh, And we see here the foolishness of rebellion uh, because we often think in our rebellion that it'll be different for us. That somehow we can get away with disobedience or we can get away with rebellion. Although others may have had to pay severe consequences for their rebellion, we'll be all right. Well, the Lord through Nahum says, are you better than Thebes? Consider Thebes. That city there in Egypt, not the one in Greece, but the one in Egypt, uh, that was the capital of Upper Egypt. And he says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? She had a great defense system. She had water around her. Uh, Her rampart was a sea, water her wall. It would have been a great uh, and somewhat impenetrable fortress. She even had allies. Cush was her strength, (coughs) Egypt too, and that without limit. So the picture here is a city that would have had unlimited earthly supply of support, that would have had uh, plenty of protection and defense, allies uh, that Nineveh doesn't have. Remember, Nineveh is a city who has betrayed her allies. She's a city that has no allies, broken alliances, and she doesn't even have the geographic advantages that Thebes had. And so in verse 10, then, we read what happened to Thebes. Despite all of uh, her um, defensive advantage, 
despite her strength and support. Verse 10 tells us, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. And then that tragic line there, uh, highlighting really for us uh, the defeat and the curse of being a defeated people. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. In other words, infanticide. The mass killing of infants came to Thebes. And Nahum is reminding us that this is one of the great atrocities of wartime. In fact, Babylon, uh, a similar thing would be said of Babylon in Psalm 137, uh, verse 9. uh, That happy is the man who will smash the infants' heads against the rocks. Uh, In other words... Uh, there is going to be a judgment coming against Babylon for attacking the people of God, for taking them captive. And the curse that will befall Babylon then is there will be one that comes against them who is happy to destroy their infants, happy to commit infanticide. And I think it's appropriate then to just remember as we read through our Bibles and we come across things like this, uh, we must remember that infanticide or the mass killing of infants is a wartime atrocity and not a peacetime novelty. It's a wartime atrocity and not a peacetime novelty. A nation that has this happen to them is a nation that is under the judgment of God for their wickedness. And in light of that, we can draw the conclusion that a nation that does this to themselves is one under a strong delusion as part of the judgment of God. And so that's what happened to Thebes. That's what Nahum is telling Nineveh to consider. Consider Thebes' defeat. And you know what, Nineveh? You are no better Than her. You are more defenseless and your support system is non existent. And that's really what we have then come before us in the next chunk of verses 11 through 17. Uh, We have Nahum now basically saying in these verses you cannot run and you cannot hide and you cannot defend what's coming. Verse 11, you cannot run. You will also be drunken. You will stagger like drunken men. You will not be able to run away. But if you are able to make it out of the clearing before the chariots come and mow you down, you will go into hiding and you will seek refuge from the enemy. You will make it to a fortress. But even there, in trying to hide in one of your fortresses, Your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs, meaning they're ready to be shaken and eaten and devoured by the eater. And so even the fortresses will be shaken and the the stones and the bricks will begin to fall as if they were ripened figs. What about the troops? Once the fortresses fall, will the people inside be able to defend 
Well, verse 13, behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now, whether this is metaphorical or actual, the, the, the statement is not good uh, that your troops are women in your midst. And it's a good reminder uh, that women have equal value in life, uh, but not equal value in hand-to-hand combat. Um, as many countries today are uh, facing the potential threat of women being drafted uh, into their militaries. Uh, that is not a good thing uh, to have women as your troops. And so Nahum is bringing this into view as part of the, the defenselessness of Nineveh. We also see then more demoralizing uh, language uh, beginning in verse 14. Uh, once again, the Lord not giving instructions necessarily, but saying, even if you draw water for the siege, even if you stockpile enough water, even if you strengthen your forts, even if you go and reinforce uh, the clay and the, and the mortar, even if you go ahead and reinforce all the bricks of your fortresses, you will still be devoured. You will still be cut down. And hopefully you've picked up as we've been reading through our Old Testaments together, um, morning as well as in the evening, uh, this, this constant... A twofold aspect of divine judgment of fire and the sword. Of course, seeing it first back uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, guarding the way back to the Tree of Life, uh, that flaming sword. Uh, once again, we have the same type of imagery here. Uh, there will the fire devour you, and the sword will cut you off. Signs of divine judgment coming upon the people. Well, after speaking about the fire and the sword, there's a slight gear shift and um, the locust and the grasshoppers come into view. Uh, The locust, of course, being the species and the symbol of mass destruction as locusts could come and eat up an entire uh, countryside, as they could come and eat up an entire crop and leave behind them nothing but a wake of desolation and destruction. Uh, But shifting gears from that judgment, there's more taunting language. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. And so, not only should you stockpile water, uh, make bricks to beef up your fortresses, but even beef up your numbers of people. Beef up your numbers of warriors and soldiers. And still... uh, You will find no security in multiplying your numbers. Uh, Nor can you find security there in verse 16 in your economy. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. But the locust spreads its wings and flies away. We see that the Lord is telling this city, uh, no matter where you turn to find security in the day of trouble that is coming, uh, none of these things will provide your security. You cannot amass enough soldiers. You cannot amass enough water. You cannot amass enough buildings. You can't amass enough wealth or economic stability to get you through the day of visitation that is coming. We also see here 
in verse 16, the lead up into verse 17, the locust spreads its wings and flies away. Brings us to verse 17, your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like the clouds of locusts. Uh, They fly away. They simply disappear when this time of trouble comes. In other words, your leaders, the leaders of Nineveh, are not going to stick around to stick it out. They will selfishly scatter themselves in an attempt to save their own skins. They're not going to go down with the ship. They were happy to lead and to feed on the bounty of Nineveh. But they're not going to be happy to protect it when danger comes. If we're looking for a good summary, I think, then, of verses 11 through 17, we could look to Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. So even these princes of Nineveh uh, would not be a place of confidence or security for the city. Which really then seamlessly transitions us to these last two verses, uh, verses 18 and 19, where we find the sleeping or the slumbering shepherds, a scattered flock, and irreparable damage. We see the shepherds there in verse 18. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria, your noble slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. We see then in these last two verses that the bloody city will bleed out from her grievous wound. In pain and agony, she will come to an end. And although she will be silent, although she will sleep the sleep of death, uh, others will not be resigned to silence. There will be cheering. There will be the clapping of the hands, the celebration of her demise and downfall. And so the bloody city will bleed out on account of her evil, um, but also on account of the shepherds that she no longer has, uh, as they uh, are asleep and as they slumber likely referring to their own death as they sleep the sleep of death, um, as they slumber in the graves. And so there are no shepherds to gather the people. There are no shepherds to heal the people uh, when this day of uh, trouble comes. There's no mending of the wounded, uh, only a bleeding out. And it's then that we see something of a great contrast um, here of the shepherds. Uh, these shepherds then who, if we can think of them in terms of the leaders, of the princes, uh, they were supposed to stay and defend and to guard and to protect the people, to gather them together, uh, to heal and to mend their wounds. But rather they sacrificed the lives of the flock in an unsuccessful attempt to save their own lives. That's the picture we get here of these sleeping and slumbering shepherds and nobles, uh, that they failed to do their duty. Uh, They had essentially abandoned their duties, and the people suffered for it. And that's a great contrast, then, to true shepherds. It's a a great contrast to the one true shepherd uh, that Scripture points us to constantly. 
John 10, 10 through 15 uh, gives us perhaps that clearest picture of what a shepherd uh, should have done uh, in Nineveh, what the shepherds should have been about in Nineveh, especially during this day of trouble, especially during uh, the time in which the flock was scattered. Uh, John 10, 10 through 15 reads, and this is Jesus speaking, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We get the picture here then that the princes that had fled, the scribes that have fled like grasshoppers and locusts, uh, these were their shepherds. And these shepherds were now lying in the graves, unable to do their duty when this day of trouble came. In contrast, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. Uh, He doesn't uh, flee when trouble comes. He doesn't flee when the wolf comes. He protects his flock, even to the point of laying down his own life for the flock. In fact, he laid down his life to heal the grievous wounds of his people. But Nineveh, this evil people, will bleed out from their grievous wound. They will have no healer because they have no shepherds. Well, by way of conclusion then, I just want us to give us a recap by way of contrast. We've already begun to tease out some of these contrasts in this chapter. Verses 1 through 4, we could simply say that Nineveh, they were covenant breakers. They had broken their word. They had broken their alliances with the nations that they had struck covenants with. By by contrast, God has never broken his covenant with any of his people. He's never broken his, his covenant with you. He's been faithful even when you've been faithless. May we be a people then who seek to keep covenant with our covenant keeping God. Verses 5 through 7, we saw that Nineveh will be put to shame. But we are also told in the scriptures that those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. That those who trust in Christ will not be naked on that day of trouble. But rather, even as Adam and Eve were covered with those garments of skin from God's own hand, We're pointed forward to the ultimate reality that those who trust in Christ are those who will be clothed in his garments of righteousness, in his robes of righteousness. He doesn't expose our nakedness, but covers it. Verses 8 through 10, we saw that nothing in all of creation could protect Thebes. Nothing in all of creation then could protect Nineveh. From the Lord of hosts. Nothing in all of creation could protect them from the uncreated enemy. Well, the inverse of that is also true. 
that when the Lord of hosts, when the uncreated is for you, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for those who take refuge in Him. Verses 11 through 17 reminded us of the futility of seeking refuge in any earthly things, in any earthly means, earthly princes, in man, or the things that man can acquire or create or build. In contrast, then, listen to Psalm 118, 8 through 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And then in verses 18 through 19, the last two verses, we saw the final downfall of the bloody city paired with these sleeping and the slumbering shepherds and nobles. By contrast, not only do we have the good shepherd in Jesus Christ as he said he was in John 10, but listen also to Psalm 121, or just uh, recall as you've are probably familiar with it, and we've sung it on numerous occasions. Psalm 121 speaks of the God who never slumbers nor sleeps as He takes care of us. He is the shepherd who is constantly overseeing us as He safely brings us to the city of God. And so this concluding summary then reminds us that there is only one safe place to take refuge, and that's really what the book of Nahum is about that in the day of trouble, there's only one place of safety and of security, and that is taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to end by leaving you with a question, and I'm actually going to ask you multiple questions, but I want to leave you with a question to hang in the air. And I do that because that's the way Nahum ends. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And if you recall back to Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11, that very last verse of the book of Jonah, we were also left with a question. And so these two books concerning the city of Nineveh end with a question hanging in the air. And we see what this question is here in Nahum, chapter 3, verse 19. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? So here's the first part of the question I want to ask and leave you with. To which city will you belong when judgment comes? Will you belong to the bloody city marked by unceasing evil? Or will you belong to the city of God? The city marked by holiness. Well, the only way to be a citizen of the city of God is to take refuge in the Lord, as we've been saying. But here's the thing if you take refuge in the Lord, if you have taken refuge in the Lord, then you must also cease from evil. Remember, God is not mocked. God is not deceived. 
We may deceive ourselves by saying things like, I've taken refuge in the Lord. Or, of course, we're the people of God. We've all taken refuge in the Lord. But remember Jerusalem. As much as she thought in Jesus' own day that she had taken refuge in the Lord, that she was on good terms with God, Jesus told her otherwise. And so to take refuge in the Lord actually looks like something. It looks like being holy as he is holy. And so here's the second and final part of the question that I want to leave you with. And I won't say anything else. Have you ceased from evil? Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven. We thank you for the provision of a refuge, a refuge from your righteous wrath and indignation against sin. And we thank you, Lord, that you have provided this refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you hold him up so clearly before us in both your Old and New Testaments. And you constantly remind us and call us to take refuge in him. But Lord, we also know that he is a holy Lord. That he is a Lord and he is a Savior who never committed any evil. And so Lord, we pray that as we take refuge in him, that we would also understand that that means ceasing from our evil. It means being holy as he is holy. And so Lord, as we take refuge in Christ, may his spirit take residence in us and may it produce in us and through us the holiness that you require. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.